Hey guys, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I wanted to just take a minute before the episode to let you know that if you have any triggers around sexual assault or uh, anything related to that, I would just warn you there are some pretty graphic details in this episode. I thought about leaving them out, but I also thought that it was important to include them just because I want everyone to understand exactly what happened to the victim so that no one is in, uh, in any way under the impression that it was uh, not as serious as it was. So just want to let you know if if you um, if you do have any of those triggers, just be aware that the, the bad nurse story, which is about a doctor who did uh, commit a sexual assault, um, may have uh, some triggers in there. So you may want to skip past that one and or at least some of the details. You can kind of tell when we're going to be talking about uh, describing what happened um, to the patient in in the hospital. Um, You guys have a good day and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And today I have a really good friend of mine named Ty with me. Hi, Ty. Hi. <laughs> Ty is a certified nursing assistant and also in school in pre-nursing. So we're going to have a, a really fun episode today. We're going to talk about a VA nursing home, which unfortunately those tend to make the news quite a, fr- yeah. frequently as I yes. find out when I'm trying to find news articles. <laughs> sad nursing homes in general but the VA hospitals and nursing homes tends tend to always be in there it's so so sad and then we're going to talk about a doctor from Texas who was accused of sexually assaulting a patient in a hospital and then we have a nice story to end with about a nurse an ICU nurse in California that used his truck to save some people so we've, we've got a fun episode First of all, I do want to start out thanking all of the people that have been following us on Instagram and Facebook and sending us messages and giving us ideas for episodes. And I've got some people that have sent me messages saying that they want to do an episode. They want to be a guest. I'm really excited about that. So keep sending messages and be sure and go on, follow us on Instagram so you can kind of keep up with what's going on. And you we also try to put photos and stuff on there too. So you can kind of see the people that we're talking about. So anyway, on with the show, I guess. So what is this first story about Ty? What were we? First one is about the veterans home. It's a nursing home. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's, have, so it says um, officials at Brockton Veterans Affairs Medical Center nursing home mm-hmm. was rated among the worst VA facilities in the country. Yeah. So, they were already rated like this, so they kind of knew they were under suspicion. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess, federal investigators came in to visit, and we know what that's like whenever oh, yeah. people come oh. around. I mean, they do that anyway, not necessarily because your mm-hmm. hospital's in trouble, but just they keep an eye on what's going on and make sure things yeah. are being done correctly. So I guess they knew, they kind of gave them a heads up, like, hey, I mean, we kind of know I know where where I work. You know if joint commissions come in. Everybody oh, yeah. kind of knows. They're coming next week. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. 
So they There's knew. There's a lot. Yeah. You, you start preparing ahead of time, even though you try to do things the way you're supposed to, and everybody tries to follow the rules, you tighten everything up even more. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So they knew this was all going on. And in spite of that, investigators come, come in to investigate because <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. investigators do. <laughs> and I guess they found a nurse and a nurse's aide fast asleep during their shifts. Is that not oh crazy? My, oh my gosh. Have you ever worked at a nursing home? I did my clinicals in a nursing home. Okay. And I got to say, it wasn't a good experience. Really? You know, I mean, it wasn't a veteran's home, but everything I've heard just about like veterans hospitals and, you know, veteran nursing homes has not been good. I know. The way these poor veterans are treated is just horrendous. And I know it's unacceptable. I don't know what it's going to take. It completely is very unacceptable. Yeah. So here they come in and find them sleeping while they're supposed to be working, a nurse's aide and a nurse. I guess one of them was kind of had kind of gone into a darkened room and the other one says was wrapped in a blanket in in a locked cafeteria. I mean, Uh, would you think that there would have been on break or something? Or do you think they were the only staff? It was nighttime. um, It was nighttime. I thought it said that. What Um, is it? I don't know why I thought I I said it. uh, Probably because they were asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Like you can't even stay awake during the day. I know. Maybe I didn't say it was night. Even, you know, Tina, like where we work, you can't sleep on your break. Well, no. I mean, nobody's going to go. I don't know. Maybe some hospitals or or facilities have places where you can go Mm -hmm. take a nap if you go on your break. But where I work, no, there's no napping anywhere, anytime, anywhere, (laughs) 24-7. No nap. It doesn't matter what time it is. It doesn't matter how sleepy you are. No. So I can't, I can't imagine when I did my clinical rotations just as a CNA. I was in a nursing home and just, there was not a lot of CNAs there. There was like maybe one nurse Mm -hmm. for an entire floor, which was like 40 something patients. So So if two of them are asleep, then that's probably, there's probably nobody watching the the entire staff. Oh, wow. Well, I know when I, when I was in nursing school, I did a a little job that was like sitting for a patient in a nursing home. So mm-hmm. I would go in at like eight o'clock at night and just sit in a chair beside her bed from eight o'clock at night till eight o'clock in the morning, one day a week. And oh my God. <laughs> it was rough, but I mean, it sounds like, well, all you have to do is sit, but all night mm-hmm. long, just sitting in it. Yeah. And it was a dark room, obviously. Yeah. And, the patient kind of had dementia and she slept mm-hmm. all night long. They would give her her meds and she would just sleep all night. They, were, they would come in about every few hours and like roll her over and change her if she needed to be changed or whatever, because I wasn't even yeah. allowed to do any of that stuff. I was only allowed oh. to really just sit there as sort of a guardian, I guess, just <sighs> a presence, you know, and maybe to let them know if she needed to be turned or needed to be changed. So occasionally I would do that. I would be, I would go out and kind of like start looking around for somebody. It's like two o'clock in the morning and I know she needs to be changed or I feel like mm-hmm. they haven't been in here in like three hours, you know? So yeah. I'll start going creeping around <laughs> looking for <laughs> like that person, you know? And so yeah. I'll find, I, I have found people curled up asleep, like in a chair, mm-hmm. like the CNA. Now I remember oh. when that happened, the LPN was sitting at the main desk and mm-hmm. 
I just kind of assumed maybe she was taking her break. I mean, just to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. Yeah. But there was one CNA for that whole floor and it, that yeah. was a big facility. Oh yeah. I mean, it was all they could do to get from one end to the other and get everybody that needed to be turned, turned mm -hmm. in the two hours before you'd have to turn around and start all over again. Yeah. Not to mention clean them up, you know? Yeah. So um, that's hard. You know, where we work, there are times I'm pulled to be a sitter for people who are on suicide precautions. Yes. And I, if I'm going to be up all night, you know, I need to stay busy. So mm -hmm. I can kind of understand like the, like it's hard to stay awake, you know, but come on. You I mean, have to, it's your job. Yeah, you really have to. Yeah. But I'm like you though. It didn't, it didn't say it was, Yeah. it was nighttime. That's so weird though. I don't know, but it's sad. I'm really getting tired of the, the VA hospitals and nursing mm -hmm. homes just constantly getting this reported. I feel like it's probably due to staffing. I, you yeah. know, I just have a feeling there's just what happens. I think with some of these places is the lack of staffing causes everybody to just feel like, well, Absolutely. I just can't do it. Yeah. Like I can't Ooh. give that level of care. It's not possible. So then they just sort of create this philosophy of care. I guess that's sort mm -hmm. of a, well, I can't is go that, that far. Yeah. You got to do what well, you got to do. I can understand that. You know, there's been nights even where we work and on my 23 bed unit, mm -hmm. the only CNA and I work in the intensive care. So everybody needs to be turned two hour, every two hours cleaned up at least every two and sometimes more. So I can understand, you know, being overwhelmed, but just full on sleeping, just giving up. <laughs> That's just completely giving up, you know? I know sometimes we are understaffed and we don't have enough help, but you can't just give up on people. If it's your job, it's your job and you've got to do the best you can with what you have. Absolutely. And then at the end of the shift, if you know you did the very best you could, that's all you can do. You mm -hmm. can't beat yourself up over it. If you, if yep. you think, Oh, I forgot to do that or I didn't, get to do that you know but we like to do that to ourselves oh yeah don't we you know at the end of the shift go oh man i forgot to do something you know and then yeah. now we can't be doing that we just have to know we did the best we could so bad nurse time <laughs> bad doctor it is a bad doctor so this this story is a relatively recent story that i saw and i remember at the time being absolutely furious i was so mad yes. When I read, yeah. so I don't want to give away like too much, but this is the story of Dr. Shafiq Sheik, and he was accused of sexually assaulting a woman while she was a patient in the hospital. So, and Ty, you kind of researched this story too, right? Yes. Yeah. So we'll both kind of jump in here and, mm -hmm. and tell the story the way it happened. Okay. So Dr. Sheik was, and I pulled this up right off of the Baylor College of Medicine website. And interestingly enough, this is current. I don't, I mean, I don't think, well, I'll just tell you what it says right on, the, right on the website. It says assistant professor of medicine, general med, Ben Taub, and that Ben Taub is a hospital. It's a county hospital in Texas where yeah. he is from. And it says that his education he did, apparently he went to medical school in India where he's from. And 
then he moved to the United States and went to medical school in Louisville, Kentucky. So then from there, he ended up at Baylor doing his residency. So that's where he was in 2013 when Mm -hmm. a patient who was 23 at the time, she had suffered from asthma since she was little. And so on October 13th, I guess Halloween, she had an asthma attack. And a neighbor took her to the emergency room at Ben Taub General Hospital. She couldn't breathe or talk. Her heart rate was um, really fast. She was really weak. And so they admitted her to stay overnight for this asthma attack. So after she settled into her room, her nurses showed her how to use the call button. You know, we always do that whenever we get a new patient. That's one of the first things that you do is you show them the call light and say, push this button if you need anything, and this controls the television, and this can put the head up and down. You know, that's just part of a routine at all hospitals Mm -hmm. is you let them know this is how you call for help. So they get her settled in there. And so then during the first night, um, her husband stayed with her in the room. He wanted to stay, according to the story that I found, he wanted to stay the second night too, but for some reason he was told that he had to leave. And I don't know why that would have been, but that's what this account said was that he, he left the second night. Well, I I was reading and it says multiple times that she was sedated. So I'm wondering like what kind of sedation she was on because, you know, in our ICU where I work, family members are not allowed to stay in the room at night. They can be in there all night long, but they can't sleep. You know, they have to be able to, get up and move really quickly. Mm-hmm. And especially if there's a ventilator in the room, they're not, I mean, they can't even have a recliner. So I'm wondering if kind of that was the case. Yeah. Maybe she, yeah. Maybe she was, it was a little County hospital. So I could see where it didn't say she was in an ICU, but well, I don't know though, Ty, cause when, when you think about all the stuff that happened after that, it doesn't make yeah. sense that she would have been in an ICU, but we'll go, we'll get to that in a minute. So he did go ahead and leave. She didn't have a roommate in there with her. So she was by herself and she fell asleep. When she woke up, she said there was a man wearing a white coat in her room. And he was, she said he was looking at everything and checking everything in the room. So I wonder if he, you know, I sort of get the impression of someone looking around, trying to make yeah. it look like he has a reason to be there. Yeah. She said after the, the this person checked on her IV bag and call button, she began to feel more dizzy. She realized that she, quote, had something in her veins. She lost control of movements and could not move her arms or legs. It says as she succumbed to the strange weakness, the man started touching her breasts. He told her that he needed to listen to her lungs and that that was normal. Okay, so... You found something that was interesting, the fact that the doctor was not, was never actually assigned to her. Yeah, so I, the research I did, you know, multiple, multiple websites and just accounts of what happened were saying he was not assigned to her. Mm-hmm. He was not any part of her care at this time that she was admitted. So I don't know how he 
ended up in her room and he has made all these other accusations that, you know, she was making advances towards him and Mm -hmm. all this, but yeah, it doesn't really add up when you think about Mm -hmm. it, because if he was never assigned to her as her doctor, I'm going to just put this out there that, mm, I I mean, I want to be careful, (laughs) but the number of times that I've seen a doctor walk into a patient's room in the middle of the night, without somebody saying, Hey, I need you to come and look at this patient mm-hmm. are zero. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> oh, zero. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah. I, they're, they're not going to go. The doctor is not going to go into a patient's room unless the nurse asked mm-hmm. them to, unless they yeah. have, maybe if they're doing, I, don't, I can't even think of a reason why they would do well, that. I also, I also read that on the floor she was on, I'm, don't remember exactly what floor, but I think it was like on the fourth floor. And mm-hmm. it made me think she was in the ICU because she, it said that he had swiped his badge 12 times to enter that floor. Hmm. So well, and like in, my, you know, you have to use your badge to open up our doors. Right. So, well, it's so interesting because it, to me in an ICU setting to sexually assault someone Mm-hmm. And think that someone's not would not possibly come along and come yeah. into the room. It seems odd because most yeah. ICUs have a glass. Yes. You know, have glass walls there and the glass door that slides open. And mm-hmm. you may have a curtain, but you, how could you possibly think you have that much privacy? Yeah. And nurses and have also, to do hourly rounds. Yes. That's also very true. You know, the nurses I work with have things to do every hour. And so I don't know. I don't know what kind of floor she was on. That he Maybe a, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it could have just been, been that, to, but yeah, it could have just been that it was the policy of the hospital to have every unit, you know, yeah. where you'd have to badge in badge out. Yeah. I, I don't know, but and it the, just seems odd. the facts and figures on this Ben Taub hospital it's got 444 licensed beds and it's a level one trauma center. Oh, wow. It's comprehensive stroke center. And so it seems like, you know, a pretty decent looking hospital, but I don't know. This certainly, oh gosh, I just can't imagine what this poor girl went through. Well, I know because it says that she, so he told told her he needed to listen to her lungs and that, that, you know, no problem with this. This is totally normal for me to come in here in the middle of the night and listen to to your lungs. Um, I mean, she is an asthma patient, so I'm not saying it's, it is normal for doctors and nurses to listen to a patient's lungs. And the nurses have to do that once a shift. Um, Yeah. And if not more respiratory Mm -hmm. does that, you know, especially if they are, admitted for um breathing problems you know so that's not uncommon no but you have you typically do that once a shift and you're going to do that Mm -hmm. most of the time at the beginning of your shift because you want to know i know for me i'm going to assess my patient toward the beginning of my shift because i want to know if anything changes throughout the the next 12 hours then i know i have something to compare it to and most people are like that and they'll, the doctor, 
doing if he was a resident maybe he had some reason that he needed to um maybe he just needed to go do his assessment and he's doing night shift yeah. and i don't want to claim that like i know every hospital is exactly the same because i know that's not true mm -hmm. but it does seem bizarre to me that yeah. he went in the middle of the night to listen to her lungs so yeah. then <clears throat> he left her room she pressed her call button for help and it says no one responded. So she didn't yell for help because she was too weak and scared. She said, and then later that night she barely could see. So I guess it was kind of dark and then the medications were kind of affecting her mm -hmm. ability to just, you know, function and be aware of her surroundings yeah. and says that, the same man entered her room and, you know, I probably at the beginning of the podcast will do a little disclaimer. Like I'll record a little something just kind of warning about some triggers because this, yeah. it is disturbing what very, he did. Very. But he said that it said that he went into her room and pulled her on her panties and was kind of molesting her with his fingers. And she tried to push him away, but she was too weak. And she said all she could do was cry and beg him to stop. And then after the second assault ended, he left and she tried to stand up, but she couldn't. She was too weak. She said she didn't have control of her body. Mm -hmm. And then she tried to use her call light again, but again, no response. So then he turned, he returned back to her room a third time. And it just said he leaned on, he leaned on a chair, covered her mouth and held her down and raped her. And she said that throughout the whole ordeal, she was frantically pressing her call button, but nobody ever came to her aid. Nobody ever came in there. And she was afraid that he was going to kill her. Mm -hmm. So no one at the hospital checked on her until the next morning. And that's what really made me think there was no way this was an ICU. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's not an ICU. Yeah. I mean, what floor is it anyway? I, I can't even, yeah. there's not a floor on the hospital where I work where the patient compl has complete, where nobody's going to go into the room yeah. all night long until morning. Especially, especially if, the, if there's a doctor going in the room, you know, I mean, if there was a doctor to walk into one of our patient rooms, you know, we would be like, oh, we need to go in there mm -hmm. and, you know, just answer any questions the doctor might have. So I am curious as to like what kind of floor this was to where she just had complete and total free for all and nobody checked on her. Right. And I'm assuming it was just a regular floor where she, maybe yeah. her O2 was being monitored, but that was it. It's odd that people didn't come in. No one came in to take vitals every four hours. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, I mean, unless it happened at a time where maybe they had just been done at midnight and then they weren't due again until four or something like that. It still mm -hmm. to me seems really odd. So she, the next morning she told the nurse came into her room and she told the nurse that a man wearing a white doctor's coat had raped her during the night after she reported the, what all had happened, one of the nurse or um, one of the nurses checked the call button and discovered that it had been disconnected from the wall. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So to me, that helps to validate her story. You know, oh, the yeah. fact that she's trying to hit the call button 
and it's been disconnected. It says that that afternoon she completed a rape examination and analysis of the evidence revealed the presence of an unknown male semen and blood and that said that the hospital's surveillance footage and door access records identified Dr. Shafiq Sheikh, an internal medicine resident with the hospital who was employed by Baylor College of Medicine mm-hmm. and that he had gone in. And like you said, 12 times he had swiped yeah. his badge to go into the area where she was and he didn't have a reason yeah. to go in there. And so then they got a search warrant at some point and decided that she could not be excluded as a contributor to the DNA in the semen collected in the rape kit. And then she ended up suing Sheik Baylor and the hospital. And she said, she's at some point in an interview, she said the moment it happened, everything her in my life changed. And it basically caused her to lose her husband. Her, her marriage didn't survive it probably because of all of the, the emotional distress that that cause causes. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm sure. On a rape victim. She said that sometimes when she was going through a really difficult time, that thinking about her attacker being brought to justice was the only thing that could help her get, get through it would help re- give her any sort of relief from the, you know, the mental torture and the emotional, emotional distress because she thought she had done everything that she could she told somebody as soon as she was able to. Yes. She participated in the rape examination. Well, what else she could? What else could she have done? You know, you would yeah. expect swift justice in this case. Yes. I mean, there's surveillance cameras, the swiping in and out into a unit where he wasn't mm-hmm. really supposed to be. His it DNA. It was not swift. It no, took- it wasn't swift. So months went by. And she basically started feeling like nobody was taking her case seriously. Mm -hmm. She said, she said that from the very beginning, when the investigator came to interview her, that she didn't feel like that investigator believed her, whatever it was, however, they maybe worded the questions or their reaction that Mm -hmm. she felt like the investigator wasn't taking her seriously. And so now all this time goes by, this happened in 2013 he didn't lose his license until 2015. Yeah. He worked for a year at a, another Houston hospital. So he lost his job right away. Baylor let him go when mm-hmm. this happened. And I guess they probably let him go when they realized, oh, so there's surveillance cameras. And then there's, yeah. they let him go. Houston, another hospital hired him, but because there was no official record Report. or. Yeah. Yeah, there was nothing there that said, hey, big red flag, this man is accused of this. <laughs> then but, they hired um, him. I, I listened to that Dr. Death podcast. And mm-hmm. in that, they talk about, because, you know, this podcast was about this neurosurgeon who just completely mutilated people. Yeah. And he bounced around from hospital to hospital to hospital. And I don't remember exactly what it's called, but I know there is a system that the hospitals use to look at everything that's happened with the, with doctors before they hire them. Even if it's not like, even if this person hasn't been um, prosecuted yet, you know, and it's not documented legally, there is this system in place that 
is supposed to prevent things like this from happening, you know, from like a rapist being hired, hired as a doctor at another hospital. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what that's called, but yeah, I don't, I don't know either, but I mean, even in this case, if you think about it, it would be hard because the police, I feel like because the police didn't take it seriously and immediately go into action. That's what really kind of tied the hospital's hands because all they can do is say, well, if you've been accused of this and we've got this evidence, we're letting you go. They really Mm -hmm. can't do, I mean, they can't really go around smearing somebody's name who hasn't gone through the process of being convicted, you know, being tried, you know, everybody is supposed to have their day in court and have the right to um, a trial, but it just took forever. And in the meantime, he's working at this other hospital. She said that she would call the police and just say, hey, what's going on? Can you give me any updates? And she basically got the runaround. She got her call to get transferred over to somebody who spoke Spanish Mm -hmm. because, you know, I guess she, that was her native language. I read she was Latin Mm -hmm. descent. Yeah. So she, she just didn't feel like anybody cared that this happened to her in spite of all this evidence. And they did. So at one point she hired an attorney and the attorney started doing some investigating that kind of started pulling out a little bit of information. And one thing that they saw was that the police were still waiting on surveillance videos Mm -hmm. from the hospital. And this was like a year later. And they're thinking is why, why is it taking so long to get surveillance videos? And the police department was like, well, it just takes a long time. This isn't CSI law and order, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff doesn't just happen in an hour, but a year for a rape, you know? So, and their thing is, well, you can't just walk into a hospital and demand information. It's a hospital. There's HIPAA laws and things in, you know, in place to protect patient privacy. So Mm -hmm. I guess that was their excuse for it taking so long, but they finally did when the DNA came back, they did arrest him two days later. Now why in the world it took that long to figure out that he was the one who's that at least his DNA matched. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but it did say that she's, she learned of the details. Basically she learned that he was arrested in the news. Mm-hmm. Nobody called her. She was, she said she felt a sense of peace, but she was also frustrated because the doctor's mm-hmm. bail was set at $30,000 and he was able to make bond. So that's only, that's kind of frustrating it, if you think about I it. I think it's like 10%. So that's, you know, and he's a doctor, so he can afford that. Right. So he was able to get right out. And then all of a sudden the police hold a press co- a press conference requesting any other victims to come forward. And they, they, they uh, suspend his medical license finally. Mm-hmm. Houston Methodist Hospital fired him and... His even his attorney said about them com- coming out and, and requesting for anybody to come forward. You know, she says, yeah. you know, they're all riled up and giving press conferences now and asking for other victims. And she said, I'm kind of like, well, this is such a terrible case and he's such a bad guy. What have y'all been doing for two years? That's what mm-hmm. his, you know, his attorney's like, well, oh, well, now he's a bad guy. I mean, I, I see her point, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now you decide he's a bad guy. So she, you know, she, and his attorney was 
was concerned that evidence could possibly be lost. Tampered with or lost. It had been so long. Oh, yeah. And she basically said she didn't buy the explanation that it took that long to go through the video and check key cards. And I have to. I agree. "Mm Mm-hmm. She said, this tells me that it sat on somebody's desk and was not a priority for them. But we know at the police department, sexual assault cases have never been a priority. That's what that attorney said. So she just felt like they just didn't care. It wasn't high on their list of things to investigate. It's disgusting. When the police chief was approached about it and asked about the delay and all of that, you know, he just said... Mm -hmm. He didn't have all the details, but that the location of the crime being in a hospital may have been a factor in the delay. I guess, you know, that whole, it's the yeah. hospital and it's hard to get stuff, that kind of thing. Then he did co- go to trial. During the trial, Sheik admitted that he had sexual contact with her. Well, he didn't mm-hmm. have any other choice, did he? No. No, his DNA was there. I mean, there, there's absolutely no way he could deny that. Mm-mm. So now he's changed his story from, you know, I'm, I didn't do it to, well, yeah, I did, but yeah. it was consensual because, yeah. you know, women everywhere in stay, having to stay overnight in hospitals for asthma attacks, that's just mm-hmm. the first thing on their mind is to want to have, you know, sex with some middle-aged guy that comes along. Yeah. So well, I, I read just, and we'll probably get to this more like, in the trial, but I read one his lawyer said was here. We have this Latina woman with her fake boobs that came onto the little nerdy middle-aged guy and he lost his mind. Exactly. And this is a woman. I don't know what she looks like. Quite frankly, I don't care if she has fake boobs or not. That is no reason, no reason, even no reason to do this to somebody. Right. And somehow his defense attorney was a woman. And for her to say some, make some, a statement like that is shocking to me. I couldn't believe it. I read that too. And I could not believe that, that she would say something like that. It's, it just, it set me on fire. I was furious. Mm -hmm. Like somehow, (sighs) oh, it just caused him to lose his mind. You know, you little Latina woman with her fake boobs. And it's just, what was he supposed to do? He was just helping, you know, you're, you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that. I don't either. It's hard to believe that somebody would say something like that. An educated Mm -hmm. woman in 2018. So in the trials, he says, so he did claim it was consensual And Mm -hmm. although he wasn't assigned to her case, as we said earlier, he slipped into her room anyway, after he quote, noticed her breast implants. So he, I don't even know how he came in contact with her. I never, of all of the stories that I read, I never read, you know, where did he see her? Yeah. I, I read a few different articles and, you know, one said that while he was examining her, this was, you know, from him Mm -hmm. while he was examining her initially that she like made advances towards him in the stretcher and just a few other things like that. But then I was like, but every other article has said that he was not assigned to her. You know, he was not the doctor that was going to be caring for her. So I'm like, he saw her. Yeah. 
Maybe he saw her in the ER when she well, came in. And then that's with the ER. I mean, this is a, a level one trauma center and it's connected with this Baylor college. So that's possible, but yeah, that's, I feel like what the emergency room doctors are for. And cause like where we work, the emergency room doctors take care of everything in the ER. And then once they're transfer, transferred up to the floor, that's where like the, the hospitalist takes over. Hospitalist takes over or surgical or, you know, urology, whoever it is. Well, that's what I'm that's saying. What if she came in through the ED and he initially examined her and decided she needed to stay overnight, then mm. admitted her, then she went on to the floor and now she becomes a patient, which I don't even understand that because she had been there two days. So this was the second yeah. day. Remember she, cause yeah. her husband stayed with her the first night. So everything he's saying just does not add up. I know. I don't know how he ever came in contact with her to begin with. Like somehow yeah, I don't either. he came Nothing's in ever really been. I don't know how he even knew she was there. I know. Like what was, if he was, and I, and it, it says he was not assigned. So he wasn't assigned to her. So he had to have come in contact with her in some way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's kind of confusing, but then I guess in the trial, both the victim and the, the doc, the former doctor took the stand and testified and the, the victim just kind of told the story of what happened when he came in. He said that the patient took his hand and placed it on her breast and that he was intrigued by her breast implants and returned to her room again. Yeah. And it said at this point, he testified that she began touching his genitals and demonstrated with her body language that she wanted to have sex with him. Mm -hmm. um, he said he knew it was a breach of his marriage vows and the Hippocratic oath, but he succumbed to his impulse. He told juror, jurors he understood that it was consensual sex. And he said that he checked her chart several times that day after he heard she told officials that it was rape. He said he told his mm -hmm. wife about his infidelity right away, but he didn't come forward to hospital officials because he panicked about the consequences. That was his story. That's what he told at the yeah. trial. I read that as well. So then his attorney for his defense said that she thought he was probably somewhat shocked and confused the first time that she, I guess, made advances to him. And then mm -hmm. he came back and did those things again. And so he reciprocated. So she's saying, well, you know, he was shocked the first couple of times, but he kept coming back and then he returned the advances to her. And then he's, his attorney said that the defense questioned the woman's credibility during the trial and presented evidence, including phone records showing that she was texting and calling people while she was at the hospital to try to prove that she was not sedated. And it says his legal team also questioned her motivation, suspecting that she had intended to file a lawsuit to potentially receive a settlement. Again, it's just, it's horrifying I mean, to me to think that oh, yeah. in this day and age that people don't get it, that women do not report rape. It's, yeah. it's minuscule, the, the amount of times that that happens. Mm -hmm. No, no woman is going to want to go through the shame and all of the torture that they have to go through Yeah, to admit something like that, to say this happened to me. Nobody would want to do that. Yeah. I'm not saying it's never happened in the history of whatever, but that is not the way it usually works. It's too traumatizing. And the well, way they have a lot to lose, you know, this, this poor lady, she lost her 
family and her it caused her divorce so yeah there's no way and you think about all of the evidence that you have with this man going back and forth back and forth if he had if what he had done was consensual he would have admitted it right away oh yeah because there's no way he so he knew what he did was wrong he thought because she was sedated she wouldn't remember it Mm mm-hmm and I don't care what kind of text messages you have from her during the day going back and forth yeah. when once she got those. Th- and here's something else I don't understand because it said in her initial account, she said that she felt a dizzy feeling and mm-hmm. that he had messed with her IV line. But yeah. you know, I never saw in any of the store, like the different accounts, including the court records. When I was looking through those, I never saw where, the defense had looked into like her lab work to see if she had. I looked for that as well and I couldn't find anything. Yeah. What? I mean, I'm really surprised. The only thing I can think of is that because they waited so long, by the time they truly investigated, there was no way to, to test to see if she had anything in her system at the time. So they only considered the rape kit. They didn't stop to think, Oh, does she have anything in her body? Mm-hmm. That wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. They didn't really talk about that. Well, and, you know, with the cell phone and text messages, I don't see how they can use that because you can be texting, you know, at three o'clock and then three thirty, a doctor come in and put something in your IV mm-hmm. and you be out. Exactly. So I don't see, you know, how. Right. So get it. their evidence was just nothing. I mean, you think of all the huge mound of evidence against him. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like an open and shut case. Yes. Or it should me be. Well. So then they had a jury of five women and seven men, and they did find him guilty. On After 15 hours of deliberation, they found him guilty. Yeah. So then became the sentencing phase where, and apparently in Texas where this took place, the jury, not only did they handle the guilty or not guilty part, mm-hmm. but they handle the sentencing as well. Yep. So the, during the sentencing phase, I guess both sides put on their argument for us for the sentencing and the district attorney asked the jurors to just remember how vulnerable these patients are under him. Because yeah. I mean, most people I think probably think he probably has done this before. Oh, well. And so that district attorney saying, you know, stop and think about what he did when you're deciding on the sentence and the way that he sought her out and he chose her to pray on. And then he did that multiple times and he snuck into her room mm-hmm. when he went in once and was sort of testing the waters and seeing what he could get away with and then left and then went back and left and went back. Yeah. Just he's a predator. He's yes. nothing but a predator. And so that's what the prosecutor was saying. You know, keep that in mind. This is the kind of person he is. Remember that when you're making your decision. Mm-hmm. And then his defense attorney, uh, one of his attorneys, asked that they have mercy on him because his wife and children had suffered greatly from his actions. And he also is being punished because of what he did. He's punishing himself because he's been uh. shamed and that I know and that they 
would hope that they would take that into consideration. He had lost his license to practice medicine and he's destroyed his own dreams and what he what he basically what they were saying is what he did to himself and his family was punishment enough mm-hmm. and that they wanted them to consider the the defense team wanted the jurors to consider that when they were deciding um on his sentencing that's ridiculous so this texas jury of five women and seven men sentenced him to 10 years probation and no jail time <sighs> I can't, I mean, I just, I don't know what Uh, else to say. If you ever wanted to throat punch somebody, you know. I don't know what the five women were thinking, for one thing. How do you let the other men decide that? But the men, too. How do those men not stop and think about their their mother, their sisters, their wife, their daughter being vulnerable to one of, to a profession (laughs) that most people trust immensely without yeah. end you just you trust your doctor they're a doctor. Yeah, you're supposed to you know that's right. what they're there for but this has just completely destroyed that line of trust that's for anybody who watched this on the news or how are people supposed to go to the hospital and feel safe knowing that this happened you can't at- at a very prestigious looking hospital. I mean, you just can't, you can't feel safe. And I mean, I don't, it's sad to me that a group of 12 people Mm -hmm. heard all of this evidence for, you know, a couple of weeks, they sat there and had to listen to all this testimony and know all of these, these things, these details and believed he was guilty. They said he was guilty. Yeah. And then thought that it was appropriate for him to not have to serve jail time. I don't understand it. I'll just never understand it. I don't know. So I really don't. Because the maximum, I think it was the maximum penalty for this kind of crime was it's punishable up to 20 years. Yeah. So instead, they chose him to get 10 years probation, which means he can still live at home. Right. Now, you know, and I know he can't work as a doctor anymore, but that's little consolation. Yeah, he, he other has things. all these degrees. I mean, he has right. an MBA and, you know, his doctorate. And there's things he can do where he doesn't have to even come close to patient or practicing as a doctor. Right. And then, so she did sue the hospital and Baylor and him. Yes. And... But unfortunately, immediately the hospital and Baylor said, no, he has to be removed because he's an employee and there's some kind of a law that says you you can't sue an employee. You can Mm -hmm. sue the hospital, not the employee. But then the hospital couldn't be sued because they're a government entity. Yes. Baylor staffs Ben Taub and it's a county hospital. So it's it's part of um, Harris Health System, which has... One, two, three, four, five, six, a lot of other hospitals. So it's... Yeah, well, I was reading it. There's a a reporter. Her name is Lisa Falkenberg. She's Uh followed this case from the time it started. She has done several articles on it. And I've got a lot of my information from her articles. But um, she said that if you slip and fall in a hospital in Texas, 
you might expect to be compensated for your injuries. But if you mm-hmm. get raped by a doctor while sedated at the county hospital one night, you get nothing. Yes. Well, I'm trying to see when this law was passed, but there was a law passed in Texas and it basically has given a cap to, you know, a doctor um, just is negligent, you know, that if you sue the maximum amount of money, and I'm not saying that this is what this girl was doing, was trying to get money at all, but this, you know, you're only allowed up to $250,000 is the cap. Then after her lawyer fees and all that stuff, there's... Yeah, $250,000 is nothing. Nothing. It's nothing. Years of emotional distress that she's... She'll never get over this. No. And it's awful that... I don't even understand that. The cap of 250000 maybe on a doctor who just accidentally does something, mm-hmm. like they're negligent, like they should have known and they didn't do, you know, they weren't using best practice and they injure a patient. If they want to put a $250,000 cap, we could debate that on, a, you know, in another conversation. Well, but in and this from everything case, I've, I've read about this act, it's called the Texas Tort Claims Act. Mm-hmm. And from everything I've read about it just is a way to keep the malpractice insurance premiums low. Hmm. So I've not read anything that could be beneficial for the public with that. Probably not. You know, and I don't know how, if somebody commits an act the way he did, I don't know how that even applies here. It just seems Mm -hmm. so unfair yeah. So they did file an appeal in June of two, of this year of 2018. They filed an appeal and they're trying to get them to change that because rather than interpreting the language as, as if he is an employee, they're yeah. trying to get them to change it because they're saying that Baylor didn't have direct control over his actions or something like that. So mm-hmm. they're trying to, through the appellate process, they're trying to get that changed so that possibly she may be able to go after him. And if yeah. not that, they're trying to also get some laws changed, maybe a modified, so yeah. that this sort of loophole doesn't happen again. So I guess that's it for our bad story. That was rough. Yeah. It was very frustrating. Yeah. I just, it made me so mad the whole time I was researching it. I was just, I couldn't even believe it. You know, the whole, the verdict just came out. It hasn't been that long ago over the summer. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when I read it, just being absolutely furious. So the Goodner story is good though. We have a good one. I like this one. I do too. So somebody sent me actually uh, Sandy from, Y'all need coffee and Jesus podcast that that did uh, an episode with me last week. She sent me this and she said, look at this. She sent me the link on Facebook. And when I first read it on Facebook, the way the link, the way the um, title of the story kind of cut part of this part of the title off. So all I saw was nurse cooks and it's, it basically said nurse cooks truck you know, yeah. in fire trying to save people or being a hero or something like that. And I told her, I said, when I first saw that, I thought it was going to say nurse cooks patients. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, 
I guess I've been doing this. Like I read way too many bad nurse stories. <laughs> my mind just immediately went there. That's so scary. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> what happened is though, he um his name's Alan Pierce. Alan Pierce. And he's an ICU nurse, right? I see I think he's a manager at, oh, right. of an ICU. That's right. ICU manager. Mm-hmm. And he all those forest fires that are going on in California right now, I guess he must be close to where that's going on. And at one point it says that by the time he got to his job, basically everything was all lit up. The sky was orange wildfire. The wildfire had exploded Mm -hmm. in the area hours before and they were really starting. It was really starting to get bad. Yeah. They were threatening the hospital where he worked. They evacuated the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so he basically used his truck to help people escape from these fires. And this truck he's apparently had just gotten last year and, you know, has just been doing all sorts of things to it and had it looking good. And then it just got burnt to a crisp. Yeah, I know. It said that he had just gotten that, that truck. I felt bad for it. For him. Devastation. <laughs> he had done all these things to it. I guess he put special wheels and had it kind of jacked up, you know, and all that stuff. So he posted pictures on Instagram of the, and, it, and then he was calling it a, his toasted marshmallow because it's a white truck. And then it's, you can see in the pictures this charred. And it is kind of toasted looking. It is toasted. <laughs> oh, it's, it's melted the headlights and the taillights and the mirrors and just... Melted. Yes. Yeah. It really does look like a toasted marshmallow. I know. It says that he called it his dream truck and mm-hmm. he had a big metal cutout of a panda welded to the vehicle and the nickname, he had a nickname for the truck. <laughs> It's called, he called it the Pandra. I guess that's like a co- combination between Tundra and Panda because it's yep. a Toyota Tundra. <laughs> so he, I guess he was trapped and there was like a line of vehicles and flames yeah. basically on either side um, on the road. And there was an abandoned vehicle on fire that blocked him on, on the left side. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he was trying to, he's, so he's got all these passengers in there with him and he's, trying to remain calm too and he said that you know the fact that he was a nurse and that that's just what he does is take care of people helped him in this situation just you know stay calm and just keep keep working to try to fix things in one way or another so he put on he said he was you know scared he was going to die yeah he did he said he was really he really thought he was going to die at one point and he still managed to just hold it together he said he put on the soundtrack from deadpool 2 but he said he fast-forwarded past Celine Dion's song, Ashes. <laughs> he said, I was like, okay, we're not going to do that one. <laughs> yeah. And he said he settled on Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a, a neat person and definitely the person you want. Oh, yeah. If you got to have somebody helping you in a situation like this. he's Absolutely. <laughs> but then eventually he said he had to hunker down in his Pandora because they... When the, the, some firefighters did show up, and he, he had two people that he worked with, and they were able to get out of the truck with the firefighters, and they put those protective mylar blankets over the windows 
So yeah. they were kind of like getting everybody um, away and he was the last one in there and he kind of hunkered down in the, in the truck by himself. He said he could hear propane tanks exploding in the distance and he watched as cars caught on fire around him. He said it was as if they were just made of wood. They would just catch on fire. Yeah. And then he said flames were kind of licking the sides of his truck. And he really thought he, at that point, he really thought he was going to die. He said a a bulldozer just came out of nowhere and knocked the flaming truck over that was beside him. That was, I guess, not letting him get out of the way. So they just, the bulldozer came and just moved that truck out of the way. And he steered out of his spot, turned around and sped back toward the hospital on and then he said to this day, he's not sure exactly why, but he thinks, we you know, why he was able to remain calm, but he thinks just knowing yeah. his family had already been safely gotten out yeah. that helped him. I read that he recorded a message, a goodbye message for his family, because he was truly, you know, terrified that he was going to die. He said, just in case that this doesn't work out, I want you to know I really tried to make it out. Oh, gosh. That's so scary. I know. I'm so proud of him. I mean, I just, by the time we read the bad stories and tell the bad stories, that's why I like to end with a good one because it, it restores my faith in people. Yes. Yes. Medical professionals. I'm just always so proud of people. I'm like, Oh, thank you for being such a wonderful person. (laughs) But he said, and the fact that he went back to help more people just, yeah. He said he got back to the hospital. He was surprised to see it still standing. Yeah. And, he said a, a couple dozen firefighters, police officers, and other emergency workers had gathered there and were tending to newly arrived patients from the immediate area. And he went into the hospital, got supplies, set up a triage area outside, and basically yep. turned the parking lot into like an emergency room. Yeah. So he said that part was easy. He said that's what we're trained to do. So it was once he got to that part, he knew what to do. Yeah. And he posted all these pictures and... Toyota USA has decided to give him a new truck. I know. That's so wonderful. So he. If anyone deserves it, it's him. He's posting these pictures of his beloved Pandra. (laughs) And (laughs) so they they see it and they say, no, you need your truck replaced. So he's getting a new truck thanks to Toyota. Yeah. So that's great news. Yay. Toyota posted. Hi, Alan. We are humbled you'd risk your life and your Toyota Tundra to drive people to safety. Don't worry about your truck. We're honored to give you a new one. Oh, my goodness. That's so exciting. That's awesome. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much, Ty, for doing an episode with me. I really appreciate Thank it. You, Tina. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. Yay, it was fun. So, you guys, be sure and go on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Uh, podcast and look me up and follow us and give us any ideas that you have so don't forget even if you're a bad girl or boy be a good guy <laughs>